Acts 21. And we are going to dive in to God's Word together here this morning. Matt mentioned it briefly, but I will add one more word. The, the little books back there called um, Before You Vote. I realize some of you have already voted. It, it's, a, it's a wonderful resource regardless of what political season we find ourselves in. I think it's a particularly helpful resource now. And like I said in the little announcement video on Facebook, which some of you aren't on Facebook, I, I don't know that it's going to change anyone's opinion as to who they were already planning to vote for. I do think it gives us some categories on thinking biblically and Christianly about politics and about voting. Um, and I know that even there are some, some wonderful Christians, Christian friends um, that I know um, who you know, even struggle with be, because of the challenges represented this political season and even last political season. Oh, I'm not sure if I even am going to vote, that sort of thing. I think David Platt actually provides one of the best chapters that I've read on answering the question even, like, should I vote? Um, and uh, if you want to know his answer on that, you'll have to read the chapter. Um, they're 10 bucks. If you don't have 10 bucks and you still want to read the book, just grab one. That, that'll be our gift to you, okay? Acts chapter 21, and I'm going to jump into verse 17 here in just a minute. In the second half of the 1800s, so I think that's the, considered the 19th century, um, uh, there was a missionary who left England to go to the country of China. His name was Hudson Taylor. Anybody heard of Hudson Taylor before? He's got a cool name. But we're naming kids Hudson and Taylor all the time now. Um, and actually, many of the friends that I know who named their children, their sons, Taylor, um, have named them after this very missionary, Hudson Taylor. When Hudson Taylor went to uh, China and to serve as a missionary there, he did something that at the time was considered scandalous. No, no other missionaries did what Hudson Taylor did. When Hudson Taylor, who was a very proper Englishman, when he went to the country of China, he chose to dress like the Chinese when he went to China. So, so he went to their country, and he put on the Chinese uh, robe-like clothing while he was there. And even more scandalous than that, he grew his hair out long and put it into a ponytail, the fashion of Chinese men of that day. And this was considered by the mission organizations that sent him and those who were back in England. It was just considered inappropriate and scandalous that he would do, that he would take upon himself, the proper Englishman whose culture was right and appropriate, right? That he would go to China and, and take upon himself these barbaric ways of, of fashioning his style and his life. And, and yet he argued, uh, Hudson Taylor argued, from the example of the Apostle Paul, he said, let us in everything not sinful become like the Chinese. Let us in everything not sinful, right? So we don't want to take upon ourselves sinful ways, but in every way that isn't sinful, let us become the like the Chinese so that by all means we may save some. So that by all means possible, we can reach other people. And so the title this morning is this, All Things to All Men. And many of you remember that in the book of Corinthians, we'll read the passage later, Paul says that I became all things to all men so that by all means I could save some. And we're going to look at a story here in the book of Acts where Paul does that. In 1 Corinthians, he's going to talk about how he did it. 
And here in the book of Acts, we're going to see one of the times that Paul did this very thing. The main point this morning is this. You should strive to do everything you can to share the gospel without distraction, but you still might go to jail. You should strive to do everything you can to share the gospel without distraction, but you still might go to jail. I'm gonna, let's read through the passage together, and then, Jay, when I'm done reading through the passage, we'll show that Bible project video, Acts 17 through 28. Okay, So if you follow along with me, we've got a, a lengthy section of Scripture here this morning. I will read it, hopefully in a way that will keep our attention. I hope you'll follow along. Acts 21, verse 17. Acts 21, the beginning chapter 21, begins the last kind of big, <clears throat> excuse me, the big section in the book of Acts. This is Paul going to Jerusalem. And when, verse 17, he had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, who seems to be the, the chief of the elders. And to James and all the elders were present, and greeting them, he related one by one, the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So Paul is giving a report of his missions efforts. And when, excuse me, when they heard it, the believers there in Jerusalem, they glorified God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed? They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? Do you, do you ever get home and um, may, maybe you're a man and, and you get home, it's been a long, hard day, and you get home and, and as soon as you walk in, your wife shares with you, the kids are doing this and I don't know what to do and there's a problem. right? So imagine Paul has had this long missionary journey, and he finally shows up back at Jerusalem, and he tells them everything that God has done, and he kind of reports to them all the wonderful things that God has done, and they say, yeah, that's great, but we have this problem, right? You can almost imagine Paul being like, I just wanted like a day or two of peace and quiet. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come, verse 23, do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. And some of you may remember that at the Jerusalem Council, back in Acts chapter 15, they sent that letter to them. Some of your Bibles may even have a cross-reference there. Verse 26, Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them, and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled, and, offering, uh, and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, right? So they're in Jerusalem. There's Jews in Jerusalem. But these Jews from Asia are ones that had been spread about, and they've come back to Jerusalem just like Paul for the celebration of Pentecost. Or, uh, for, um, not Pentecost, um, Passover. The Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up 
the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and against the law and this place. So they're saying Paul is teaching against Old Testament scriptures. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. Okay, so picture it. Paul's in the temple. The Jews get angry. They drag him out of the temple. The temple gates shut. And the Roman army military officers find out about it. And verse 32, he at once took that tribune, took soldiers and centurions and ran down, probably a couple of hundred soldiers, ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Do you remember last week, the prophet Agabus took the sash off of Paul's robe and tied up his own hands and his own feet and said, the man whose belt this is will likewise be bound. Don't you imagine that as those handcuffs are going or whatever the shackles look like, as those are going, those chains are going on Paul's wrists, he remembers exactly what Agabus had just predicted. Yep, it's happening just like, just like it was prophesied. Uh, he put on two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another, and as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And the tribune said, do you know Greek? Right, Paul is speaking to him in the Greek language. And, and the tribune is confused. Verse 38, the, tribu- the tribune says, Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? And Paul is replying to this Roman military officer and says, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, Permit me to speak to the people. And when the tribune had given Paul permission, Paul stood on the steps, motioning with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, Hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. That's where we're going to stop in our scripture reading today. Um, and in Acts chapter 21, really kind of almost through, ver- almost through the very end, but at least through uh, chapter 25, is 
is recounting this story of, this is kind of one big long story, and I've got I've to kind of chop it off at certain places, or I would take five hours to preach to you um, on, on a Sunday morning. Um, and so, so but, but I do think it's important for us, um, as we are kind of diving in now to this last big section in the book of Acts, to remember the context and to remember what God is doing in the book of Acts. And I, I can't remember if I showed any of these uh, videos to you. I know I put them, posted them online. But let's just watch this Bible Project video that's going to give us a quick five-minute overview of these last eight chapters in the book of Acts. Okay, so let's watch this together. We've been exploring the book of Acts, which was written by a man named Luke as a continuation of the Gospel of Luke. Acts began with Jesus telling his followers to spread the good news about his kingdom. And they would start in Jerusalem, then go out into the neighboring regions, and from there to the ends of the earth. Now, in Jerusalem, their message was received by many and opposed by many, especially by the leaders of the temple. They were scandalized by this new claim that the whole story of Israel had been fulfilled by Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. One of these leaders was a man named Saul of Tarsus, who worked tirelessly to stop the movement. That is, until he met the risen Jesus himself. And this encounter transformed Saul from an enemy of Jesus into a herald of his kingdom. And so for years, he traveled about the Roman Empire using his Roman name, Paul, starting Jesus communities all over. And one of Paul's greatest desires was that all of these diverse communities would see themselves as one unified people, regardless of their differences, Jew or non-Jew, male or female, slave or free. Jesus was creating one unified family of equals living together under his rule. And this brings us to the final section of Acts. Back in Jerusalem, where the movement began, the Jewish followers of Jesus were suffering from a drought and food shortage. And Paul was so passionate about the church's unity that he began a major fundraising project among the diverse churches he had started. They would pool their money together so he and a group of representatives could take it as a relief gift to Jerusalem. But it's not safe for Paul in Jerusalem. The Jewish leaders there dislike him so much they want him dead. And Paul knew he was walking into a trap. His friends all begged him not to go, but no one could stop him. Yet why would Paul risk his life to bring this gift? Couldn't he have sent someone else? Well, for Paul, this was personal. Jerusalem was where he used to participate in the murder of Jesus' followers, and now he gets to serve them. It's also where Jesus himself was executed, and so for Paul, it would be an honor to suffer there alongside his king. Paul goes to Jerusalem, and as expected, he's found by his enemies. A mob forms, and they try to kill him. But Roman soldiers save his life by taking him into custody. This is the story we The Jewish read, leaders read are accusing morning. Paul of starting a revolt against Rome, but they can't prove it. And the Romans don't know what to do with him. Yeah, they can see Paul's not a criminal, but his claim that a crucified Jewish man is the risen king of the world, it keeps getting him into trouble. And so Paul gets transferred from one court to another until he demands that his case be tried before the court of Caesar in Rome. And so they happily ship him off. Now, throughout this section of Acts, Luke, the writer of the story, has portrayed Paul's trials and imprisonments so that they resemble his previous stories of Jesus's trials and imprisonment. Luke's making an important point. When the people of Jesus follow the way of Jesus, their stories will begin to look like his story, which is beautiful, but it also comes with a cost. On the way to Rome, the boat carrying Paul is hit by a violent storm, and everyone freaks out. 
Except for Paul. He's below deck hosting a meal, just like Jesus did the night before his trial. Paul blesses and then breaks the bread, promising that God is with them through this storm. And the next day, the ship hits and then breaks apart on the rocks, but everyone's washed safely ashore. Which is amazing, but Paul's not out of trouble. He's taken to Rome and put under house arrest. But it's not so bad. In his house, he can host groups of Jews and non-Jews, sharing with them the good news about Jesus, the risen king. This is a bold move in Rome, the center of power where Caesar rules the world as king. Yes, you have Jesus's alternative upside down kingdom now growing in the very heart of the world's most powerful empire, all through the suffering of a prisoner. And with this contrast between kingdoms, Luke ends his story. That's a great image, but the story's supposed to be about this message spreading to the ends of the earth. So shouldn't it continue? Of course, Luke has left the story open-ended on purpose so that his readers would know that the story isn't over and that they can participate in Jesus' kingdom that is still spreading to this day. Okay, so that little video gives us context for where this story is as we are moving into kind of the, the, the final big chapter in, in the, the book of Acts. And that, that little video, um, each time I watch it, 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 actually I realize how, how there's more in, in, in the video uh, than I even realize. Um, so it might be the kind of thing that you even want to watch before you, you come for the next few Sundays as we finish out the book of Acts, might be the kind of thing that you just, you know, save on your computer and watch it. It's just the Bible project, um, Acts 21 through 28. So what we're going to do now is we're going to walk through this passage together and make some observations about it. So first of all, let's look, point number one here, let's look at Paul's report. In verse 17, Paul is going, uh, it, he's, he has finally come uh, with the brothers into Jerusalem, and he meets the brothers, the Christian brothers that are there, and they they gladly receive him, and remember, we, we, we've read about it previously in the book of Acts, and we saw it, we even heard it in the video here this morning. One of the reasons that Paul himself was going into Jerusalem was to bring an offering, a gift to the brothers and sisters, the Christians that were there in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was undergoing a famine, a difficult time financially, and so, so Paul does something that would have been somewhat humiliating to, to the Jerusalem Jews, and he goes and collects money from Gentiles. Have you, ever, have you ever received charity from someone and deep down in your heart you thought, I don't want, I don't want it from them? Uh, you know, like, I'm the one who's supposed to be helping them, not, not them helping me. Maybe, maybe no one in here has ever experienced that sort of thing. Maybe I'm the only one who's that proud and that arrogant. But there have been times, right, in human history where when we receive help from someone else, we think, ah, really, I'm the one who's supposed to be helping them, not vice versa. And Paul shows up and he tells the believers there in Jerusalem, he goes into the elders of the church uh, being led there by James. He greets them in verse 19, and he tells them, relates all the things one by one, the things that God has done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So he's not promoting himself. He's promoting God. He's saying, like, God, here's the ministry that God has given me, and here's what God has done, and here's this offering that I've collected for <coughs> the needs. Sorry, I try not to cough into my microphone. <coughs> the needs that are represented here in the church at Jerusalem. And, and he brings this, this report, 
He brings them good news of what Christ has done, and he brings them this gift. And on the heels of his report to them, you see um, their concern. This brings us to point number two. There's six points, and we're going to move through certain ones of them pretty quickly here. Point number two, we see the concern that the Jews have. He talks about, or they, they talk about, um, verse 20, they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. So these Jews have come to know Christ, but they are still very, very zealous for the things of God, the, the ceremonies and the laws of the Old Testament. And they have been told about you that you teach something that's very disconcerting to them. They are very zealous for the law of God, but they've actually been told, there's a rumor that has reached them that you, that you um, are teaching Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They're going to find out that you're here, Right? Verse 22, they will certainly hear that you have come. And so these Jews have uh, a concern that the Jerusalem, the elders there at the church of Jerusalem um, have this concern when Paul shows up. And, and we see that, the, um, that, the, that those who have come to faith in Christ in verse 20 are zealous for the law. One commentator says this, while not viewing it as a means of salvation, these Jews still observed the required feasts and the Sabbath regulations and the ritual vows and the dietary restrictions. They're, they're still observing these, these laws and commands that had been given to them in the Old Testament. And one, one pastor, his commentary helped, uh, helps us understand maybe why, why these things were. They were maybe still clinging to the customs. Why were they still clinging, rather, to the customs and the rituals of the Old Testament, of the Old Covenant? Jesus has made it clear that He has come and He has fulfilled them. Well, first, one of the reasons is because those customs and rituals had been established by God. And coming to faith in Jesus Christ enhanced the Jewish believers' love for God and their desire to obey Him. And so for many of them, it may have motivated an even greater zeal and, and understanding of those Old Testament ceremonies, right? So they're celebrating Passover together, and they realize we know, we know who the Messiah is. We know the Lamb whose blood has been shed to make way to to uh, to make uh, payment for our sins, and so we celebrate Passover now with an understanding that we've never had before. It was very likely a, a genuine love for God and an understanding of who Jesus Christ was that actually intensified these Jews and their um, their uh, following of the law. Another. Another understanding would be that the apostles and other leaders in the Jerusalem church didn't oppose the continuation of these practices. Right? Nowhere in the New Testament are Jewish believers condemned for them. There are times in the New Testament where, where um, there, uh, Old Testament believers in following certain of the Old Testament commands are referred to as weaker brothers. They don't have the full understanding yet. Romans chapter 14, verse 1 and following, 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 10, 
talk about living in an understanding way with those who refuse to eat what has now been made edible by God. Don't, don't, um, don't cause a weaker brother who thinks he can't have those things. Don't cause him to sin. But nowhere are they condemned for following these laws. And, and you'll remember that in Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem council has made it clear that Gentile, that Gentile believers don't have to follow the Old Testament law. Um, they, they, um, they reiterate that here uh, in just a moment in verse 25. So the, Jer- the Jews have this concern, this rumor has reached them that Paul's been going around telling people they can ig- ignore the Old Testament. This is, this is one example, again, of what rumors can do. Fake news existed during the time of Paul, right? The news got to them, and they thought, well, man, this guy's a rascal. He's teaching, he's teaching false things, and now they find out that he's here. And so, in, some, in, a, in a, a turn of events that I think is actually kind of interesting, the elders of the church here in Jerusalem, remember the church had been founded by apostles, but elders, a multiplicity of pastors serving that church are now the ones who were leading the church at Jerusalem. And Paul humbles himself by listening to the recommendation of men who have been appointed leaders in the church that he helped found. Right? A lot of us, we think, well, if, if, if I'm the founder, I'm the, I'm the president, I'm the CEO, I'm not going to listen to the people that have, you know, that have kind of come along since I've been in charge. And yet Paul is getting ready to listen to number three, the elder's recommendation. Verses 23 through 26 contains some Old Testament information that's a little bit challenging for us to understand. And we actually talked about it earlier in the book of Acts, where Paul himself takes a Nazarite vow. And we see here four men who are under a vow. And the elders say, you know what, Paul? It would be good for people to see you very supportive of these Old Testament commands and these Old Testament laws. And so why don't you join in with these four men who have taken this vow and you support them financially and you make yourself ceremonially clean. You've been traveling in all of these Gentile lands and so you need to become ceremonially clean as well. So why don't you go and become ceremonially clean and become supportive of these men in their Nazarite vow. And, um, and this will show to the Jews here in Jerusalem that, that you haven't thrown away the commands of Moses and that you are... Um, that you are supportive of the traditions and the, the culture. And brothers and sisters, what Paul is getting ready to do is he's getting ready to do something very similar to what Hudson Taylor did when Hudson Taylor went to China and started dressing like a Chinese man. He realizes there's nothing sinful, there's nothing wrong with me doing this, and in fact, it may give me gospel opportunity, and so I'm going to become all things to all men and do something that I don't necessarily have to do but it will, it will allow me to have greater gospel impact and greater gospel opportunity, and I'll participate in this Nazarite vow. In, verse, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19 and following, we hear Paul talking about this kind of uh, scenario. Let me read those verses. Paul says this, Though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. What is Paul doing right here in verses 23 through 26? 
He's becoming like a Jew. He is a Jew, but he is adopting, he is, he is jumping into a very Jewish ceremony. The, uh, he, he's, he's really Jewy right here. In order to win Jews, to those under the law, I became as one under the law, that I might win those under the law. What is Paul doing right here, right now? He's putting himself under the Old Testament law so that he can have greater gospel impact. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. So, so Paul is saying, look, I, I want to be wise and understand where I am and who I'm with and what things are like where I am. And I'm going to become, when I'm with Jews, I'm going to become very Jew-like. When I'm Gentiles, I'm going to become very Gentile-like because there's something far more important than being Jewish or Gentile, and that is saving those who need to be saved sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 23, the most important verse, I think, in this passage, in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Paul's not doing this for the, the same reasons that the elders are telling him to. The elders are saying, look, you need to adopt this Jewishness to, because people are going to get really upset and they might hurt you. Paul is doing it so that for the sake of the gospel, I may share with them in its blessings. Paul is doing this thing so that he can have more gospel opportunity. And so Paul follows the recommendations that are listed by those elders there in verses 23 through 26. And so what's the response? What happens when the Jews here in Jerusalem... Uh, what, what happens when Paul does this? Well, he's participating in the vow, he's purifying himself, and when the days of purification, verse 27, when the seven days were almost complete, the Jews from Asia, who had come to Jerusalem for this celebratory time, when they saw him in the temple, they knew who this man was, and they stirred up the whole crowds, the crowd laying hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law. So here are Jews from Crete and Ephesus and Thyatira and Cyprus, right? Um, Jews who have been spread all throughout Asia, where Paul has just been, and they're coming and they're spreading this rumor about Paul, and they're saying he's told us he is teaching things against Israel and against the Scriptures and against God and against our people. They are spreading this fake news. And in fact, they're almost like, you know, the, the piranha fish when they smell blood in the water, right? And then it just becomes this feeding frenzy. This is what the Jews here are doing. And they even begin just making up stuff about him. Look in verse uh, 28. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city. So here's what happened. They see Paul in the city earlier that day, and they see him with a Gentile from Ephesus, a guy who is not a Jew. And then later they see Paul in the temple, and they just make up. Well, obviously he's here in the temple, and he brought, he brought Trophimus right here, that Ephesian. He brought him into the temple. Now, brothers and sisters, uh, the way the temple worked, um, there, was a, there was a court of the Gentiles beyond which a Gentile could not go. 
And there was literally a wall, and some say it was between three to four feet tall, this rock wall. And as you walked into the temple, anyone could come to a certain area, but then beyond that, only Jews could come. And there were signs erected along this wall that said something to the effect of, you know, we're not responsible. Uh, for, for Gentiles who go beyond this point, we are not responsible for your certain death. So, and, and history tells us that the Roman uh, rulers in Jerusalem at the time gave the Jews two thumbs up. Like, they were like, fine, if, if, if a Gentile goes past where he's supposed to go and you want to kill him for doing that, that's, that's your laws, that's your understanding. We're not, we're not going to get involved with that. So, like, this was a clearly understood thing. Trophimus would not have gone beyond the court of the Gentiles. But, there, I mean, the, the feeding frenzy has begun. Just, just a quick, just a quick um, side note here. Brothers and sisters, let's make sure that we are careful. Let's make sure that we are careful when we hear news and when we um, carry news to the next group of people that we aren't like the, the feeding frenzy that's going on here. Let's be careful that before we forward that email that we know that such and such organization really did say such and such, right? Like, I can't tell you how many times I've gotten emails from well-meaning, loving Christian people. This business has done this, taken this stand, you know, for this cause or has said this about our military or has said this about our president or whatever. And then I, I just do a little bit of research and realize this. It's fake news. It's a made-up email. It's not a true story. Sometimes we are eager to, to promote and to jump on the bandwagon of the piranha feeding frenzy just because the news story kind of supports the thing that we already wanted to believe in the first place. Friends, be careful. Don't, don't believe something just because you like it. Don't forward it just because it supports your position. Make sure it's true. Don't you be guilty of promoting rumors. And we as Christians do it. We do. We do it. There's a story told of someone a long time ago who had spread a terrible rumor about someone. And uh, the next day found out that it was a rumor, and then they were mortified. They realized they had told many, many people this horrible news about the person. So they went to the wise old man there in the city and and said to, the, to this wise old man, I, I did this horrible thing, and I spread this rumor all around the city um, about this person. What, what should I do? And he said, well, go to the market and buy a chicken. And on your way home, pluck a feather from the chicken, and every step you take, leave, leave a feather of that chicken your entire way home, and then come back the next day and, and see me. After you've done that, come back and see me. So the person has no idea why they're doing this, but they go to the market, they buy a chicken, the chicken's dead, by the way. They take the chicken, and they pluck a feather for every step they take, and they walk their quarter mile home or whatever, and leaving a, leaving a, a feather for every step that they take, and then they go back to the wise man the next day, and the wise man says, now, today, I want you to go back and regather all of those feathers. That's what it's like trying to undo the rumor that you have spread. Brothers and sisters, we see, again, this is just a side note. This is not the main point of the passage, but there's a lot of harm and damage that can be done when even well-intentioned people jump on a bandwagon and start yelling louder than they're thinking, and the piranha-feeding frenzy begins. Let's be careful that we are people who bear truth and bear it in a way that's respectable 
and understandable. Okay, so the Jews, the Jews riot. And then number five, we see that the bad guys come to the rescue. The Romans, the Romans come and arrest Paul, and they are, they're arresting him is actually what saves him. Verse 31, they were seeking to kill him. Word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion, and at once he took these soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And they stopped beating Paul, and the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him and bound him with two chains. And he required, he required who he was and what he had done. And some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another, right? So here's this Roman officer trying to find out what in the world this guy has done, and everybody's yelling. He can't hear. He can't figure out what's going on. He starts to haul them back to the barracks. They literally have to pick Paul up and carry him because the crowd is just absolutely out of control. And more than ever, in recent history, we understand what a crowd that is out of control looks like, right? You can, we, for the last few months, we've been able to turn on the evening news and see what rioting looks like. And so it would have been a very similar scene, right? If you were to walk into one of the riots that's happened in our country here over the last few months and try to get, okay, someone explain to me what's happening and, and who started this and why, why are you doing it and what, what good is going to come from this, right? Like, there, there wouldn't be anyone who would answer those questions. It would just, they'd just hand you a rock or a Molotov cocktail or throw one at you, right? Like that's, that's kind of how riots work. And so the bad guys come to the rescue here and they pull Paul away from the Jews who would have destroyed him. And then finally, number six, we see Paul's defense in verse 40 of chapter 21, when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language. We, we see that Paul addresses the, the Roman officer in Greek, and he addresses the Hebrew, or the Jewish people in Hebrew. And here, in the vow that Paul has taken, and the language with which he is addressing the Roman officer, and the language with which he is addressing the Jewish people, we see Paul becoming all things to all men. He's speaking to the Greek. He's speaking Greek to the Romans, Hebrew to the Jews. He's seeking to adopt the customs of the Jews in order to become all things to all men so that by all means he might win some. He is being wise and winsome with the gospel. Friends, let's take a moment and consider our wisdom with the gospel. I'm afraid that sometimes we as Christian people get most worked up about least important things. And we actually, we actually create a barrier to witness to the people that need Christ the most. Think about who you get most worked up about. What kind of policies you get most upset about. What kind of worldview you get most angry at. What kind of Facebook posts you post most angrily toward. And it's usually the people who are the most different from you. How dare they have this understanding on abortion? How dare they have this understanding on the economy? How dare they hold this position regarding human sexuality? And so what I'm going to do is absolutely blast them. Instead of, not in any way sinful, but instead of becoming all things to all men, we have become um, 
we have become our own walled-off city reaching no one. And we're just a little echo chamber with the two or three other people that believe and think exactly like we do, and we're having no real gospel witness and effect on others. Do you ever think about the fact that if you wanted to share the gospel with someone who thinks differently than you do, you might want uh, to post on you might not want to post on Facebook things that make fun of that person and their position? H- how can we be all things to all men like Paul? Again, this is it, it's a, it's incredibly clear in this passage, and it has to be incredibly clear to us. I'm not talking about us doing sinful things to reach sinners. Listen, I'm not going to go rob a bank in order to have a bank robbery ministry, right? I minister to bank robbers, but the only way I got to really get in with them, and I'll go, you know, rob a bank, and, you know, that, no, that's not what I'm talking about. You see, what Paul is actually doing is he's actually limiting himself in order to have more ministry, And that's the thing you and I don't want to do. I remember a dear Christian man who has discipled me years ago and has had a profound impact impact on my life. And he says a, a real Christian who wants to minister is willing to limit his liberties in order to expand his ministry. He's actually willing to limit what he does have the freedom in Christ to do in order to have a more expanded ministry with other people. If you lived in a Muslim neighborhood, would you be willing to give up pork in order to have an unhindered witness? Or would you think it's my, it's my Christian liberty, I can, I can have pork and I'm going to eat whatever I want to eat? Are you willing to limit your liberty in order to expand your ministry? If you lived in Africa, would you be willing to wear a dress or a skirt in order to have a more effective witness with the ladies in your community? Would you be willing to limit your liberty in order to have a more expansive ministry. If you ministered with those to those with drug and alcohol addiction, would you be willing to give up your beer and wine in order to have a more effective ministry with other people? If you lived in a large city and had neighbors who held different political positions than you, would you be willing to not put the yard sign of your favorite candidate in your yard in order to have a more effective ministry with others? It is absolutely okay for you to put the yard sign of whomever you want to in your yard. But would you be willing? Would you be willing? Do you ever think, how is this expanding my ministry with the cause of King Jesus? Would you be willing to learn Spanish, to minister to people who have come into your country illegally, even though your country's language is English? I can tell you how many times I've heard people say, We speak English here. They've got to learn my language. I'm not learning theirs. Okay. I mean, like, okay, you're you're right. But does the fact that you might have opportunity to minister to someone ever enter your mind? Would Would you be willing to limit your liberties? Would you be willing to take a burden upon yourself in order to be a more useful servant of Christ in God's kingdom. I don't mean to be crass, and it's kind of funny. Timothy was circumcised as an adult man in order to go 
and minister more effectively for the cause of Christ. That's a willingness to take a challenge and a difficulty upon yourself in order to go and share the gospel of King Jesus with other people. Are you willing to limit your liberty in order to expand your ministry? If not, it's because you love you more than you love Jesus and more than you love others. That's the short, hard-to-swallow part of it. If not, it's because you love you more than you love Jesus. We often hear people talking about their Christian liberty, and I do believe in Christian liberty. Christian liberty is freedom. It's freedom from legalism. It's not license to live selfishly. Paul became all things to all men so that by all means he might save some. And here he is taking upon himself of doing some ritual cleansing and paying for a vow that was not his to pay for, speaking Greek to the Roman and, and Hebrew to the Jew. And he's doing these things. And we might be tempted to think the reason he's doing that is so he can get out of trouble. But what happens? Where is he when we leave this story this morning? He's imprisoned. I mean, he's, he's getting ready to go to prison. But I mean, he's, he's, he's literally in chains addressing the people who have caused the riot that put him there. So, brothers and sisters, you can be all things to all men and still face significant trouble. Paul did. Paul brought a gift. Paul, Paul brought a gift to Jerusalem, and he knew that Jerusalem was going to hold suffering for him and difficulty and challenge, and yet he loved God and he loved others enough to go to Jerusalem knowing he was going to suffer there, but he goes to Jerusalem bringing this financial gift. Who does that remind you of? Someone who, knowing he was going to suffer, went toward the people that would caused the suffering, bringing them a gift. He's moving toward Jerusalem. He knows that suffering's coming. He has a gift for the people that would cause the suffering. Who does this remind us of? It reminds us of Jesus. Jesus isn't asking you to do anything he himself hasn't already done for us. He isn't asking us to be a kind of person that he hasn't already through his life and death and resurrection. If you were in Sunday school, did you hear that? Life, death, resurrection. That he hasn't already done for us. Paul's a great example. Jesus is the great example. Brothers and sisters, like the little video that we watched, one of the things that they said in the video is those who are followers of Christ, whose lives begin to mirror the life of Christ, also begin to enter into the same kinds of sufferings that our Lord knew. None of us like to suffer, but we can suffer when we know that there's good on the other side of suffering, right? You can really scrimp and save knowing that you're saving up for that new whatever. And you might go without some things for six months or a year knowing, yeah, but there's this really good thing coming. You might forego eating desserts and, work, uh, and start working out and that sort of thing and suffering that way, knowing that you've got a, a health goal or a, a game that you want to play or a team that you want to play on. You can suffer for a little while when you know that there is good to come. Paul has already been assured by Jesus Christ 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that, that, that his hope is eternal. Brothers and sisters, our hope is not dependent. We're not waiting for November 3rd to know whether or not we're going to be okay. Jesus has secured for us the certainty through his resurrection that those of us who follow him, we will, we will live for eternity with him in heaven. We have, we have a good hope that's certain for us. As we conclude our time together here this morning, I want us to conclude with a song that's an oldie but a goodie. Josh, what's the number? Okay. Music team, y'all come on up here. Let me see. It, a Mighty Fortress. Yeah, 151. You got it. You had it. If you, if, you got it, if you can grab a hymnal there in front of you, this is going to be our closing song, and then Matt will come and close our service in prayer. 151, A Mighty Fortress. And if you look, I want, you to, I want to draw your attention to some words. So this is one of those songs. It's an old song. It sounds like an old song. You ever go to your grandmother's house and you eat off those old dishes, right, the old Corel dishes that are white and have the little green flower print around the outside edge of them? Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, but like there's something really comforting in knowing that you're connected to generations of the past. When I sing an old song like this, there's something really um, encouraging to me to know that like Martin Luther wrote this song 500 years ago and like the truths of it still remain today. I like singing. I even like singing songs that sound old sometimes. Look in verse four. The word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Now, the last two lines are what I want to pay attention to. Let good and kindred go. Okay, so goods are like your finances, your house, your car, your stuff. And kindred is your family. This mortal life also, that's what it's referring to, your life. So let your goods go, let your family go, let your life go. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. America will be a footnote in the annals of time in history. It will be a footnote. You are not primarily a citizen of the United States of America. I love the United States of America. I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. I don't want my kids to live anywhere else. I want our country to be great, but it will be a footnote. It will. God's kingdom is forever. Paul became all things to all men because he knew that there was an eternal kingdom that he wanted to help spread the word about. Jesus became all things to all men in order to be that message for us. Brothers and sisters, by God's grace, let's be all things to all men so that we can help spread this same message of the kingdom of Jesus Christ and it lasting forever as well. Let's stand and we'll sing together. A mighty fortress.